which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and by the te- that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we want to come into your presence today and ask that you would speak to us from your word, that we would treasure your word, that we would uh, cherish it, and that we would walk in it all the days of our lives. Help us uh, to be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. And so we ask that your spirit would be present. We ask that your spirit would would minister to us, would feed our hearts, that it would ground us uh, in the gospel and the implications for how we should live uh, in light of the gospel. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I don't know if you've ever thought about this much, but oftentimes when people try to motivate someone for uh, good behavior, we can tend to lay on a guilt trip. We can tend to lay down a bunch of rules and, and press people to behave a certain way or act a certain way. And even sometimes as parents, we fall into this trap of, of giving our children a little bit of a guilt trip or giving them uh, a list of rules. The Bible doesn't motivate us in that way. The Bible grounds the motivation for holy living in the work of God, in the work of Christ. And so when we understand what God has done for us in our redemption, in salvation, in saving us, all the good work that he has done for us, that becomes the motivation to obey him, to serve him, to follow him. And it's not in a manner that's legalistic, and it's certainly not in a manner of uh, a guilt trip. It's not like God is, is rubbing it in and saying, well, look at what I did for you. How dare you not serve me? Or maybe like a mom might say, well, I gave birth to you. You better listen to me. But the Bible uses the gospel so that the gospel becomes the motivation for holy living. And when the gospel is not the motivation for holy living, we do end up in this zone of giving guilt trips. And we do end up in this zone of of being legalistic of putting down a bunch of rules of this is how you should obey and this is why you should obey. In these things, the gospel needs to remain center. And so we've been walking through the book of Romans and what you'll notice here in Romans chapter 12, Paul takes a a sort of turn in the book. If the first 11 chapters were primarily all about doctrine, The last chapters, 12 through 16, are primarily about Christian living. That's not to say you won't find doctrine in the last few chapters, and that's not to say you don't find uh, aspects of Christian living in the first uh, 11 chapters. But it is to say that the focus shifts. And you can often see this in Paul's writings throughout the New Testament. He begins, for example, the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are primarily about doctrine. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are how to live. And so it is always the truth and it is always the gospel that grounds our motivation and our call to holy living. And this, as I've said already, keeps us off the path of legalism. And so our main point this morning is simply Christian behavior comes from God's mercy. And so you'll see that Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. How different is this from someone who might appeal by making a guilt trip? Someone who might appeal by by racking up your conscience in an unhealthy way. Now, there are times where our conscience convicts us and it's good. There are other times, and I'm sure you've seen it, where someone is manipulative in the way that they play upon your conscience. They make you feel guilt. They make you feel like if you don't do this, you aren't appreciating them. Some of you have experienced that maybe in some of your regular relationships. People who are manipulative in that way. God doesn't work that way with us. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't make his appeal to the church at Rome and to us in that way. 
He appeals through the mercies of God. And, and the first 11 chapters have entirely unpacked these aspects of the mercies of God. Look at what Christ has done for you. Look at how you contribute nothing to salvation. Look at how justification is by faith alone. Look at how sanctification is being united to Christ in Romans chapter 6. Look at how the Holy Spirit is given to you in Romans 8. Look at this election in chapter 9 that you've contributed nothing to the grace of God. Now, in light of what God has done for you and I, to save us and make us His children. Now, let's think about how we should live. Let's think about what our lives should look like as Christians. Christian behavior comes from the mercy of God. Its motivation is grounded in the mercy of God. Its source of strength and power flows from the Gospel of God's gracious mercy. So, first this morning, because of God's mercy... Present yourself for the worship of God. God has redeemed you and made you His child. He has saved you. You are justified and sanctified in Christ. You are made a new creation, adopted into the family. Guess what you can do now? You can come into the presence of God and and worship. And so he says, because of God's mercy, present yourself for the worship of God is the main point here. Paul appeals in light of God's mercy. We've already highlighted this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This word for mercy is not the most common word for mercy, but it does have this idea of pity or mercy or or sympathy in light of how God has looked at us and had this compassion and did things for us that we did not deserve. Now, let's respond because we've seen His greatness. It's used in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. It's that same word here that's translated mercy. Sympathy has this idea that you look at something and you see something in someone and you have compassion towards that. You see a lack. You see a need. You see how desperate the situation is and you sympathize. Your heart goes out to them. And in the same way, God in the Gospel, His heart goes out to us. In fact, in Colossians 3.12, this word is actually translated compassionate heart. And it says that the believer is supposed to put on compassionate hearts. Why do you think that is? Because God has a compassionate heart. This, this mercy that abounds towards us in our weakness when you consider the wretchedness and the wickedness of our sins. God sends Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And now the question is, how do I respond to it? And Paul is turning to the church and he says, I appeal to you. This is important. So that the Christian life is, is not just something we believe, but it, it leads to a transformation. I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you. I want to make the plea to you, brothers and sisters, Now, present yourself to God in Christ. We sang the song, I surrender all. Are you willing to surrender all because you see all that God has done for you in Christ? And so we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You want to know the joke that probably every preacher tells with this passage? The old joke is, what's the problem with a living sacrifice? It can climb off the altar, right? How easy would it be, I I think, in some ways, if, you know, compared to being a living sacrifice, how easy is it to to bring an Old Testament sacrifice, you know? I just got to bring in some sheep or some goats and I put them down at the altar and, and that's it. You know, we don't like to think about how gruesome it would be, but at least you go home at the end of the day. The poor sheep doesn't. 
But we're called to be a living sacrifice. We're supposed to live this way regularly, consistently, habitually. How hard is that? The Christian life is not just coming to church on a Sunday and checking off a box. The Christian life is not just, well, you know, pastor and the elders should be happy. I wrote my tithe check today and put it in the offering. I'm good. That's my sacrifice. We're to be a living sacrifice that all of our lives are now surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ because we understand what He did for us on the cross. Our bodies here are are living sacrifices. We're not just going through the motions. Notice here, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So, So this does focus on the body. This does focus on me, the person, how I I live my life. This does focus on my behavior, the conduct that I act out in a physical body. And so, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, We were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Christian obedience takes place as we live in the body. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. There was in the ancient world a, a separation of the spiritual and the body. And oftentimes it was the spiritual that was seen as a, a higher plane and it didn't matter what you did in the body. One of the first church heresies called Gnosticism really bought into that. That the spiritual, the higher plane was was where we existed with God and and really our bodies were just, they were just flesh bags and they didn't really matter. And sometimes what often would happen in the pagan world is even it didn't matter how you lived with your body. It didn't matter what you did physically because, hey, you were spiritual. We see this today in our world, that you can be spiritual. You can think about spiritual things, just engage in some meditation, just just clear your head, practice mindfulness, uh, do whatever you want with that side of things. And then, well, you know, how you live your life, that's up to you. And so we, we have this rebellion, in a sense, against honoring God with our bodies. So that people can be considered in our culture and even in our church culture, good Christians and spiritual. And it almost doesn't matter how they live. Well, you're doing that kind of sin. Well, as long as you have a good walk with God. The Bible teaches that the spiritual and the body are wedded together. That that as I obey the Lord, it's not merely in some spiritual sort of thinking. It's not merely in my feelings. It's not merely in my head, but it manifests itself in the conduct that I carry out with my body. We're not divorced as people. We're not chopped up into parts. We are the whole person and God redeems the whole person. And therefore, as he's done an inward work in us, certainly in our soul, certainly in our spirits, which we do have. He also is working to do an outward work in us. That the redemption that I have in my heart manifests itself in my behavior. In a behavior of holiness. And so we present our bodies. It's out of the body to God that we sacrifice. Now this doesn't mean that I, that I literally lay down my life or, or draw blood or, or something like that. But what it means is that every area of my life is an area that I can give and serve the Lord. The Protestants coming out of the Reformation used to have what we called a doctrine of vocation. That every job 
that you work can be something that you can do to serve God. Now, of course, if it's an illegal job, you're not, you know, if you're a drug dealer, you're not going to be able to serve God uh, in, in that way. But, but every legal job that you can do, everything that, that, you know, if you're just a carpenter, if you're just a, a truck driver, if you're just a, a lawyer, these things can be done in service to God because you honor Him with your whole self. Your, your body is a living sacrifice and you can do it in a way that's full of integrity, that is upright. If you're a mom and you're at home all the time, you're doing it in a way that you probably sometimes do feel like a living sacrifice as your kids are pulling on you. But it's not a less of an important vocation in the, the kingdom of God. It's not like, well, the pastor has a really important job in the eyes of God and, and my job is just kind of down here. And uh, I wish I could serve God more. You can serve God wherever you are. It's this idea of being a living sacrifice, presenting your bodies. So you may even for yourself ask, you know, what does God want me to do with my life? As you're thinking about college, some of you teenagers, wherever you go in your field, make sure it's what God desires for you. Make sure it's a a calling, a, a vocation. It's something that you can do to, to honor God, that He's given you these gifts and talents and you're going to serve Him. You can ask yourself, well, what would God have me do in the life of the church? You should look at every sphere of your life and say, how in this area am I a servant of God? Maybe it's as being a spouse. You're a servant of God. And remember that when things get difficult. You're not just there for you, or you're not just there for your spouse. You're there to to serve God in the whole of your life. And why do you do this? Why do we go through hard situations in life and have patience and endure? Because God has been patient with us. When we understand the mercies of God, it gives us motivation to stick it out, to, to persevere, to hang on, to say, yeah, this is going to be really hard because i got to go back again to this job and be the living sacrifice again tomorrow. And I have to demonstrate a Christian testimony with some people that are just being jerks. And yet that's our call. Being a living sacrifice involves surrender. At the end of the day, it's about what does God want me to do with my life? And am I using it for Him? Am I surrendering and giving it over to Him and saying, I want to obey you with every area of my life? How interesting it is in our modern culture how we can often chop up and dichotomize areas of our life. Here's my church life. Here's my church friends. And people know that I'm doing well and I'm walking with the Lord And then here's this area over here that I keep secret. Maybe it's a a private sin that you don't let anyone know about. Maybe it's just in your job or, or in some sphere of your life. No one knows you're a Christian. And you never say anything. And people crack the dirty jokes and you laugh right along with them because you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. And you chop up parcels of your life and you say, well, this is where I'm, I'm sacrificing and giving to God. But this area, this is my part of my life. Oh, brothers and sisters, all of our lives are to be for the glory of God. This then is true and proper worship. So it says... Present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, It's interesting, again, here, the word spiritual is not the normal word for spirit, pneuma, uh, but it actually is the word that has an idea of this idea of being uh, rational or thoughtful or reasonable worship, perhaps even the word logical Although that probably is stretching it as you think about how logic is a word in the English language. It has this sense of true and fitting. The NIV actually translates it true and proper. In other words, this is the right way to worship. This is the reasonable, acceptable, fitting way. This is how we worship God by being this living sacrifice. And you can even think about how often in the Old Testament did God uh, rebuke the Israelites Because they were going through the motions of the sacrifice, but they didn't have mercy. You think of those words in in Micah that God desires justice and mercy. 
He's not impressed with the sacrifices that people were giving just as a rote habit. As I said earlier, God isn't impressed that you're just showing up at church, although we want you to show up at church. Don't just check that off and figure the rest of my week I can live however I want. The, The right way, the true and proper way to worship God is to continually surrender and submit to His Lordship and be this living sacrifice. And look, I'm not saying that it's easy. I mean, I have times in my life where I don't want to do things that I know are right. Or I have times in my life where I just do things and I'm not consciously thinking, you know, how am I doing this for the Lord? But it is the way that God calls us. That we are continually surrendering. We do not worship merely in the outward forms. We aren't worshiping merely just with feelings. And we aren't worshiping in some sort of nebulous pagan definition of what it means to be spiritual. Again, you can think about how Eastern religions in our world work today and the spiritual is sort of this higher plane of thinking and existence. And it's divorced from daily living and it's divorced from the life that we live in the body. And so oftentimes the church has bought into this separation. Worship is reasonable and rational. It's true and fitting that I regularly look to submit and obey. It's interesting. You think back earlier in Romans, Romans chapter 1. When Paul is describing sin, how does he describe the sinner? Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. If that's the hallmark of sin and living out sin in our lives, how much more should redemption be the honoring of God with our bodies? The regular submitting to Him and giving these things uh, over to Him. So what does true worship look like? Second, this morning, because of God's mercy, it says, be transformed, not conformed. Be transformed, not conformed, because of God's mercy. You think about how conforming works. You're bent around some sort of mold, some sort of model. You, you are shaped by something. I saw a, a video this week. It was, it was actually kind of cool, but it was kind of scary. Uh, this guy was a weightlifter. And he was doing squats. And squats are where you put the bar on your back and you load it up heavy. And then you, you basically bend straight down and you push it back up uh, using your quads and, and uh, your thigh muscles and all of that. He put like 650 pounds or something on the bar. And uh, the, the note on the bottom of the video said the bar had been rated for like 675 or something like this. And as he was, as he was bending this down, and believe it or not, this, the, this weight wasn't too heavy for him. And he starts pushing it up. The bar starts to bend. It just completely started bending around like his neck and his back. And and by the time he got it back up, and he couldn't even get it all the way back up on the rack, he kind of had to get half on the rack and kind of slip out from under it. He really should have had a spotter, uh, but that's neither here nor there. The point is the bar looked like a yoke by the time he was done. You know how yoke bends around the neck? The bar conformed. To his neck and his back. It was, it was kind of crazy. And I thought, well, that's a really good example of what conforming looks like. It, it bent around something to the mold. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't take the pattern of the world. Don't take the pattern of this sinful age that we live in and allow yourself to be shaped around that or shaped by that or, or bent to that pattern of living. Don't Be conformed to the sin around you and the way the world lives. 1 Peter uh, 1.14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So do not be conformed to the pattern of sin that is evident around us. Don't just go along with what everyone is thinking and saying. Don't let your behavior of an, uh, the behavior of a non-Christian around you bend you into their mold so that you use your body and live your life in a way that dishonors God. 
I had an experience with this in my own life in high school when I went to, to high school and was a freshman. Uh, I kind of wanted to fit in. I was uh, at a new school. This was uh, my first school year out on Guam. And so in order to fit in, I picked up a swearing habit, uh, a pretty bad swearing habit. And like not just swearing when I was angry, but trying to be the cool guy that just throws in the swear words uh, in the regular conversations because that's what some people around me were doing. And all the the kids that I were judging as cool, that's how they talked. And thankfully, I had a a Christian friend who, who knew I was a Christian and about... Uh, halfway through the year when I really started to get into this habit, uh, he just called me out on it. And, and it really convicted me. And, and God was very gracious in that sense. But I say that to say it is so easy to conform to that which is around us. Rather than being conformed, our, our minds need to be transformed. You see, I was thinking there in a very worldly way. I was thinking in terms of what can I do to fit in? What, what will make me cool? What will make me not stand out in the crowd? And so I was conforming to that pattern rather than living as I knew I should have been living and allowing God to transform me. So there's a difference here between being conformed where you're just bent around the pattern and God actually changing you into something new. And so he says here, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is one of the works of redemption? God transforms us. So he removes the guilt of sin, right? That's justification. He unites us to Christ. That's part of our salvation. But then part of what he's doing through the inward work of the Spirit is he's changing us. He's transforming us. And that starts when when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's putting the new heart in there in us. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from which from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Romans 8.29 What's our destiny? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of the Son. So there, the word is conformed, and it's we're bent around the mold of Jesus. But this is a transformation that He changes us to, to look more like Christ. And He does this through the renewing of our minds. We need to think differently. We need to think like Christians. We need to think as those who know the Word of God. And out of that thinking, we should then obey with our bodies. But notice here that the Bible is not against the mind. That the mind is part of what is being transformed. Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt and through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This doesn't mean that as our minds are transformed that we all have to get PhDs. He's not saying we all need to be intellectuals. We don't all need to be the smartest cookie on the block. But it is to say that our behavior is driven from our hearts and through our minds. That right behavior will flow from right thinking. I think in our day and age, Christians are often um, opposed to the life of the mind. We, we are driven and we walk more by feelings, by, by intuition. Well, how do, I, how do I know God is speaking to me? How do I know God is directing me to go here or do this? Well, I'm, I feel it. And that's not to say there aren't times where God gives us that, that deep, burning passion. But God also uses our minds to be able to discern, is this wise? Should I do this? Should I behave in this way? 
There have been times in life where I've seen Christians where they almost shut down their thinking and their brain and, and just go by the feelings of things. As if feelings are somehow more holy or somehow more spiritual. Your feelings can be corrupted by sin just as much as your mind can be corrupted by sin. And honestly, where do your feelings come from but your mind and your heart? And so the process of sanctification in the believer is a renewing of the mind. What does that mean? What does that look like? Fill your mind with good things. Meditate on good things. Think about good things. Spend time reading the Scripture. What you put into your mind is what is going to be coming out of it. If you're watching a bunch of garbage on TV, if you're watching a bunch of uh, movies with, with sexually illicit material or murder or whatever, over time, if we're not careful, we're going to start to think that way. Look, I like good movies as much as the next person. And I'm not trying to be legalistic and say, don't watch this movie or don't watch this movie. But what I am saying is think about what you're taking in. Think about what you're thinking about. Think about how your conversations go. Think about who it is that you're hanging out with and who has the the biggest influences on your life. Who's speaking into your life more. This is not against having non-Christian friends. We should have friends who are unbelievers. But this is about saying, who's shaping you? Who's influencing you? What elements of our culture and our world and the life around us are not being put to the test of Scripture and we're just letting it kind of soak into us? Be extremely careful. Now, this doesn't mean we need to be like in the old days, like fundamentalists. And we make the joke around here that back in the early days of the church, like you couldn't go roller skating because they were they were very strict. And and I would argue probably, well, not probably they were legalistic. They didn't intend to be, but that was the effect of it. We're not trying to go down that rule. But yet at the same time, God is concerned that we honor him with all of our lives. What does the renewing of the mind lead to? Testing and discernment. Notice this. But be transformed by the renewing of the mind for what purpose? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. So because of God's mercy, exercise discernment. This is, this is fascinating to me. This is kind of cool. This is kind of exciting. We're actually supposed to put our minds to work and be discerning. We're supposed to think about things. We're not supposed to go just, well, you know, I feel like this is wrong. Or I feel like this is right. We're not supposed to just in prayer wait for some kind of whack up on top of the head where God exposes everything to us and shows us all these things. We're supposed to read the Word of God, spend time in prayer, right? Asking God these things, and He will instruct us through our minds so that we can be discerning. But guess what we have to use? Guess what we have to exercise? Our minds. Do you see how this is contrary to, to many ideas of spirituality today? For example, in, in Buddhist-type spirituality, what do you do? You're supposed to empty your mind of all thought. You're supposed to like push it all out of your head, and that's how you commune with the divine. And in many ways, some of those sorts of thinkings are, are creeping into the church so that we don't end up honoring God with our minds. Now, I'm not saying that our minds are all that we use. We have our heart. And certainly the Spirit does work in us and the Spirit uses the Word of God and we obey with our, mo- our bodies. But if you're, if you're cutting out the mind from this plan of God in sanctification and discernment, you're not doing it right. This isn't how it works. And it's fascinating here that God is instructing you're going to have to discern some things. You're going to have to use your mind to think about and test and say, okay, what is the will of God? 
This idea of test that you may discern, it's actually all one word, discern or approve or test. It's to make a critical examination of something, maybe to determine its genuineness, to put to the test, to examine. Paul uses it in Philippians 1.10. He says this, and it is my prayer that you love that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve. So there he uses the word discernment and then he says the same word here so that you may approve or so that you may test what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for this day of Christ. You see the Bible the Bible doesn't give you a list of what movies you should watch and what movies you shouldn't watch. Like you don't open up and say, well, now at the end of Revelation this week, the list of movies that are approved is coming out. And these are the ones that you can see and these are the ones that you can't see. The Bible says, use your discernment. Test what is excellent. Look and say, what is the will of God? And so you look at the pattern of Scripture. and You know, what does holiness look like? What are the things that we're told to avoid? What are the things that we're told to think on? Is this movie a, a good movie? Will it lead me to think about things that are, that are ungodly? Will it lead me to think about good things? And you can't simply do that by whether it's rated G or whether it's rated R. Believe it or not, there are some G movies and PG movies that in subtle ways get you to think in unbiblical things. And there are some R movies that maybe challenge the passion of the Christ, whatever you think of it. It was rated R. Some good historical war movies that may be appropriate have ratings that are not appropriate for little kids. My point is this. I'm not telling you what movies to see or not see. I'm not endorsing R movies or PG-13 movies or whatever. The point is this. God wants you to exercise discernment. Part of living the Christian life is to discern what the will of God is. Part of discernment is applying the Scripture to your daily lives. We often think of finding God's will in in terms of, well, does God want me to go to job A or job B? There are times where we are saying, okay, God, what is your will? But the more important thing in those situations is that are you living as the living sacrifice? Are you saying, okay, God, direct me? Then Then you maybe list out, well, why is this job good? Why is this job bad? What are the dangers? What are the strengths? And then you use discernment. You don't have to wait for this feeling of, I should take this job. You don't have to wait for a voice in your head that says, hmm, this is the way to go. You discern what the will of God is. You can think of all kinds of moral situations where we have to make discernment. For example, some of you young people, as you get older, you're going to have to discern if you should date someone. You may find someone that you like and you're going to have to discern Should I date them? First question you should be asking is, are they a Christian? Because what's the point of dating them if they're not a Christian? The point of dating is to get to know someone that you might want to marry. And you know from Scripture you can't marry an unbeliever. But you don't just look at a a potential boyfriend or girlfriend and say, well, they say they're a Christian. Okay, that's good. Let's go. I can date him. I can marry him. All those things. You have to be discerning. You have to ask questions. Are they godly? Beyond just godliness, you have to to say, you know, is this someone that I like the way they think about life? I like their attitude. I like their sense of humor. I don't like their sense of humor. They have this laugh that annoys me. Do I want to wake up to that every day of my life for the rest of my life? You have to be discerning. And adults... There's so many things in your life, and we could give so many examples where God calls you to be discerning, to look. You take the grid of Scripture, and then you say, how do I apply it into my life? There are a lot of things. Now, hear me very clearly on this. There are a lot of things that Scripture doesn't give you a direct command on. 
do this, don't do that. But it gives you the principles to apply, which involves you knowing your Bible and discerning that, yes, this is a principle that applies to this situation. And so the Bible governs all of our lives in that sense, but not in the sense of giving us a command for every little situation of minutia. The Bible didn't give a command, should I roller skate or should I not roller skate? Maybe there are situations where you shouldn't hang out with this group of people because what that is associated with and the path that that will lead you to. But you discern that from a whole bunch of other principles in the scriptures. I hope I'm making sense there in that. Romans 2.12 We're to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are the things that it's God's will for you to dwell on. When I was a kid, we only, for a season of life, listened to to Christian music. And that's good. The lyrics were good. It guarded my mind from things creeping in that would distract my thinking. But I would say this, as I got older, I discovered there was some good music out there that wasn't necessarily written by a Christian. And it still thought on good things. It still caused your mind to dwell on what is good. How many of us like classical music, like Mozart? It's funny that people don't avoid Mozart because he wasn't a Christian. His music is good and it causes you to dwell on beauty. And here is an unbeliever that even though he was rebelling, he honored God or God used, I think, his music in some ways. Sometimes the unbeliever, the doctor who rejects creation and yet can heal the patient because God has given him a knowledge of common grace and how the body works. And so even in those things, you use discernment. You don't necessarily say, well, I can't go to this doctor because he's not a Christian. Sometimes maybe you say that. But other times you say, you know what? This is the best knee doctor there is. And I have a knee problem. You see how discernment works in the Christian life? Let me just end this morning by giving you a couple applications. And I want to give you some questions you can ask for discernment. First this morning, the transformation through the renewing of the mind is part of God's grace. It's part of the Gospel. It's part of what God is doing in you. And so the the exhortation is not renew your own mind. The exhortation is rely on the Holy Spirit through the power of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 5, and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And I just marveled this week as I was looking at Romans how many times Paul mentions the mind. In my daily life, where is the focus of my mind and my thoughts? Is it on godly things? Is it on things that are pure, holy, right, true? Am I regularly exposing myself to sin and letting it invade my thoughts? When your mind wanders, where does it wander to? How can I exercise some discernment? Let me just give you a couple of suggested questions you should ask. The first question should be, is this biblical or unbiblical? I mean, if there's a clear command, like do not murder, you don't have to sit there and be discerning, well, now, gee, I wonder if I should commit murder here today. Is it biblical or unbiblical? Does this break a commandment? If it breaks a commandment, it's sinful. Does it fail to do something that I know is good? So James 4.17 says, So whoever, does, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is sin. 
So sometimes it's not that there's a line in the sand and, and, and we're, we're in danger of transgressing it. Sometimes it's we're here and we're not doing something and what we know we should do is step out and do that. So we exercise discernment. Should I do this or not? Another question of discernment. What will the consequences of this act or behavior be? Sometimes there are decisions in our life that aren't necessarily the wrong decision to make in the moment. But as you plan ahead, as you look at where this could go, it could lead you down a path that lead to some dangerous consequences. And so discerning the will of God, in part, means avoiding that. Not for legalistic reasons, but for reasons of wisdom. Another question, would it cause another believer to stumble into sin? Would it damage the cause of Christ or the name of Christ? Am I putting the interest of others before my own? As you get down this sort of scale of these questions, we need to start to think about, am I just doing this for myself? Or am I doing this for other people? Sometimes it's not wrong to do something for yourself, like, hey, I'm going to join a gym because I'm going to do that for myself. Other times you have to say, you know what? Maybe I can do this, but it would be a little bit selfish if I did do it. And I need to think of someone else first. Is it pursuing God's best? Is it pursuing excellent and and true? Is it wise? I think this is the most underrated category in decision-making in the Christian church today. We often don't ask, is it wise? And apply biblical wisdom principles from the book of Proverbs. And finally, I would say, if you really uh, continue to be stumped, do I need to ask, do I need advice from mature Christians before I proceed? And maybe, maybe in the scale of these, you want to put that question up a little higher, because it's often good to to talk to experienced Christians and say, you know, hey, what are the dangers? Someone who has a little more life experience as well. What would you think if I did this? Talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Bring it up in your small group. But use discernment. The ultimate measure for discernment is the Word of God. But God calls us through the renewing of our minds to use God's Word to discern and test and approve what God's will is so that God can direct our paths. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to just ask that you would work in our hearts and work in our lives, that you would uh, speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would delight in you and all of your ways. Give us this wisdom. Give us this discernment. Help us to be that that living sacrifice. As we think about the grace of God given at the cross, that we would delight ourselves in saying, Lord, how can I serve you? What would you have me do with my life? How can I honor you all the days of my life? Help us, Lord, to walk in that those ways we know with our sin, we, we will never live up to your standard. We will never be perfect. And yet, Lord, help us to pursue you because of the grace that you have pursued us with. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will please stand with us as we conclude our service with All I Have is Christ. Not love.
in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that Jesus would be uh, our whole life.